How much do you love God? How much do you love God? That is the question that we're looking at today. And, well, it's not an easy one to answer. We're looking at the passage, Mark 12, 18 to 34, and within that passage, there are two of the most well-known verses of the Bible, and that is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. And they sort of encapsulate, they, they are a picture of what it's like or how Jesus wants us to live life as a Christian. And even if you're not a Christian, you probably know these verses and you probably know the one, love your neighbour as yourself. They're very well known. They're simple instructions. And yet, they're probably the hardest for us to live by and put into practice. So before we look at this passage, I want you to remember a time, or maybe you're in that time right now, but a time when you were totally head over heels in love with someone. And maybe it hasn't happened for you yet, but maybe you had a taste of it with a pet or maybe a car that you bought. Just remember that feeling where you just were so excited and you just want to spend all your time and all your energy, you want to make that person happy and you anticipate when you're going to be together and you're looking forward to that time. And it's like all of your focus is on that person. So just think about that as we look at this passage. And we've been travelling through Mark's Gospel now for a while and we're coming to the last weeks, or the last days of Jesus' life on earth. And as it gets closer to that time, the religious leaders of their day are more and more desperate to try to undermine his authority, to discredit him to all his followers. And last week with Joshua, we heard about the Pharisees who tried to trap him about paying taxes. And they thought that Jesus would either have to contradict the Old Testament or he would cause dissension with the Roman rulers. And we saw last week how Jesus came up with a beautifully wise and clever answer to that one from the Pharisees. And today we see a question from the Sadducees. And they're attempting to undermine Jesus' authority. So let's have a look. Verse 18. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. As you read the New Testament, you'll hear two main groups of, of scribes and of teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the largest group and they were made up of, of people who were, uh, you know, like us. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were made up of priests and aristocrats and, and they were sort of at a higher social set than the Pharisees. And they looked down on the Pharisees as commoners. And the Sadducees sort of had a bit of a snobby view of their interpretation of the Bible. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Now, they both based their interpretation on the Old Testament. And we don't really know why the Sadducees didn't agree with, with, with the resurrection, but they didn't. But just to be clear about 
resurrection in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's not as much a subject as it is in the New Testament because in the New Testament, Jesus has just died and risen from the dead. It's history. It's real. It's living with people right here and now. And the promises from the Old Testament are suddenly being fulfilled. And it's this hope that's given to people. And so in the New Testament, it's talked about a lot. This is the hope for those of us who know Jesus as Lord. This is our hope to look forward to, that when we die, in fact, we will be resurrected and spend eternal life with God. But the Old Testament still looks at, still has verses about the resurrection. And I just want to give you a couple. So the book of Daniel, he was a prophet. And you probably remember him from being thrown into the lion's den and surviving. But he wrote this in Daniel 12, 1 to 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake to eternal life. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake to eternal life. And another one, Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah was a prophet. And he's talking about people whose their bodies will rise, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with morning dew, and the earth will bring forth the departed spirits. So it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear God is saying in the Old Testament that there is an afterlife. There will be a resurrection. So verse 19. The Sadducees think that they've come up with a really clever way to trick Jesus and show that the resurrection could not possibly be a real event. And this is what they say. They start out with, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, sorry, I'll read yours, teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Now, this is a biblical principle. They're quoting the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy 25.5. And it was to ensure that land continued to be owned by each family. But then they go on. Verse 20. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. The third... But the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. And last of all, the woman died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. So Sadducees think that they're using the logic of their head because they can't understand resurrection. They can't understand what it's going to be like in the afterlife. And so they've come up with what they think is a really logical explanation to show that resurrection could not possibly be a true event. And this is what Jesus says, verse 24. Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now, Jesus knows the Old Testament perfectly. And in their ignorance, what they are doing is imposing their view on the Bible. Because they can't understand it, they are basically saying that the Bible is wrong. And, and that's not something that was just happening in, in those centuries. 
I know people who stumble over parts of the Bible, the virgin birth, for example. I know people who say that can't possibly be true because they can't understand how a baby could be conceived without a man. And so they stumble over that and they don't believe in the word and they don't believe in the power of God. And that's what the Sadducees were doing. They couldn't understand it. So verse 25, oh, sorry, verse 24, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Instead, they will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus is saying that resurrected life is not like life here on earth. It's not something that we can just transplant what we're doing here straight into heaven. It's different. And we will be like angels. We won't be angels because angels are separate creatures, but we will be like them. In verse 26, but now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus is referring here. Oh, so he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. Jesus is referring to Exodus 3, 6, which is a foundational teaching in Jewish history. And that is when Moses was standing before this burning bush. And this was a bush that was on fire and yet it was not being burnt up, it was not being consumed. And God spoke to Moses and he said to Moses, I'm going to use you as the leader to take my people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land to be a nation for me. And he said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And these are the founding fathers of the Jewish faith. The Sadducees would have known this. This is key to their understanding of their history. And so Jesus is making clear that they have made a mistake. So the Sadducees, they thought they had this watertight argument to ridicule Jesus, to make fun of the resurrection. Instead, what they did, they showed their ignorance. And it's an ignorance of this beautiful life, this beautiful promise that God has for us, life after death. So 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul is writing and he is quoting from Isaiah. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has seen. We haven't seen anything of what it's going to be like in heaven. We haven't heard anything of what it's going to be like in heaven and we can't imagine what it's going to be like in heaven. It's going to be this beautiful, incredible place that God has prepared for us. And Jesus is testifying to this and very soon he will actually do that very thing. He will show us that resurrection is real and by the power of God. He was crucified and he died but he rose again. And so I wonder... What things in the Bible do you struggle with? Are there certain passages that you find hard to accept? Are there things that you think, oh, we, we know so much more scientifically now, so that can't possibly be true? 
Are there parts where we're using our mind because we can't understand the scriptures, the power of God, because it is supernatural that we ridicule it or we scoff at it? We don't want to be like the Sadducees. We don't want to use our arrogance in our knowledge and miss out on the beauty and the wonder that is in the word of God. So the next encounter with Jesus, it does show that there were some scholars of the day who appreciated Jesus' wisdom. So verse 28. One of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realised that Jesus has answered well, so asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now this would have been something that people talked about, the scholars talked about all the time because the Jewish people had so many rules and regulations that they just wanted to know, well, what's the most important one because I'll just concentrate on doing that. Verse 29, Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and only Lord. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And he's quoting here from Deuteronomy 6.45, which is called the Shema prayer. And it's a prayer that all Jewish people pray to express their faith to God. But there is one difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is that Jesus adds, with all your mind. And that's because the Hebrew idea of heart included your emotions and your will and everything that you thought about. But the Greeks had sort of siphoned off this idea of the mind, that the mind was the one that thought about things. So what Jesus is saying is that it doesn't matter about the bits of you, it doesn't matter the soul, whatever, it's all of it, every part of your being, whatever you call it, whatever you think, every part of your being is important to God. Every thought, every emotion, Everything within us, everything within us is to love God. Now that's, that's a big call. Because just think about the things that get in your way between you and God. So say you've got a partner, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. You want to spend time with them. You want to make them happy. You're, a lot of your focus is on that person. Nothing wrong with that. God wants us to have good relationships. But it can get unbalanced, a matter of priority. How important is God in your life? If you have children, then you know that, you know, every part of your being really wants them to, you know, have a good life, and when things don't go wrong, your heart aches for them. But do you love your children more than you love God? And when we think about ourselves, we spend a lot of time and energy on our careers, on our homes, on, on what we wear, on how we look, on all those sorts of things. And again, nothing particularly wrong with that, but again, it's a matter of priority. How important, how much energy and time do we give to God? God wants us to have him at the centre of our lives, 
not just on Sunday, not just in the morning when we have our prayers or the night when we have another prayer. There's no room for divided loyalty. So we are to love God with every part of our being, at home, at church, at work, when we play sport, when we're at the gym, when we're at the doctors, we're in the dentist, supermarket, when we're on the computer or any of our other devices. God wants us to love him with every part of our being. He wants us to love him when we're sick, when we're well, when we have lots of faith, when we have struggling with our faith, when we're angry, when we're calm. He wants us to love him in every situation, every emotion, every place, 24-7, every day of the year. That's what this commandment says to us. Well, it's impossible, right? I mean, we can't possibly do that. We might want to love God with every part of our being, but the reality is for us that we all fall short. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a saviour. We need God's help to love him wholeheartedly. And that's the beauty of this commandment, that we can't do this without Jesus' help. And we need the Holy Spirit to come and help us to love God with everything that is within us. We can't do it on our own strength. So let's come to the second commandment, verse 31. The second is equally important. Love your neighbour as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So two questions come from this simple statement. Who is the neighbour? And what does it mean to love as you love yourself? When Richard and I lived in a different suburb, we had a neighbour across the backyard who used to throw his rubbish over into our yard. Now, it wasn't in the green plastic bags that we have today. This was his rubbish bin, and he would just tip it over the back fence. So there were food scraps, you know, rotten eggs, rotten fruit, vegetables. He even would throw over his doggy droppings. And so there was this mess always in our backyard. And we had a dog. I think I find it easier to sort of cope with a situation like that if I can sort of understand why somebody might do that, what motivates them, what's behind them doing something like that. But in this case, it didn't matter how many times we went to see him, he just continued to do it. So that for us was a very literal love your neighbour. But we know from Luke's Gospel that Jesus went on to explain who our neighbour might be. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25 to 37. It's the story of a Jewish man who was, who was mugged and he was left by the side of the road. A Jewish priest came by, saw the man and kept walking. A Jewish temple official came by saw the man and kept walking. And then a Samaritan man came by and helped him. And the Samaritans were considered by the Jewish people to be dogs. They looked down on them. But in this context, Jesus is saying, your neighbour is anyone who comes into your realm of influence. And he didn't say, love everyone. 
and love anyone. He said, love your neighbour. Because if we say, oh, I love everyone, I love all those poor children who are starving in Africa. You know, I love the persecuted church. I love people who are doing it tough. I pray for them and I send them money. That's good. But that's at arm's length. To love your neighbour is to love someone who's in your face and it can be confronting. It can be something that makes us uncomfortable. And so Jesus is saying that's when we have to put love into action. And what about loving ourselves? To love others as we love ourselves. What does that mean? Because it sounds very prideful and a bit conceited. But if we're often honest, we know that we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. But we do know how we want to be treated. We do know that we want to be treated with understanding, with respect, with compassion when we mess up. We want to be treated with tenderheartedness and grace. And Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7, 12, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. In everything, this is the same way of saying love your neighbour as yourself. In everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. We know how we want to be treated. We want to be treated tenderheartedly and so treat others that way. So we need to remember that that person who is annoying you, that person who's you know, troubling you or upsetting you, this is a person made in the image of God. And it is a person for whom Jesus died. And they may not be doing a good thing. They may be doing something quite ungodly. But that person themselves has absolute intrinsic value to God. And that's where God calls us to love. And of course, the purest form of love for ourselves, it comes because God loves us. God loves us before we even knew we needed a saviour, he sent Jesus. And he loves us in an immeasurable amount. So these two commandments of Jesus, they sum up the whole of the Ten Commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. All of those Ten Commandments fit into either of those two. And I've had people who've, I suppose, been maybe affronted by my faith or taken offence at my faith, and they will say to me, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And I think what they're saying is that they take their own inventory and they look at the commandments and they think, well, they haven't done any of those and so they measure up and all before God. I think what they really are thinking of is that they haven't killed anyone. Because I always say back to them, well, I can't even keep the first commandment. And the first commandment is in Exodus 23, which says, you will have no other gods before me. No other gods. And I suppose that people think that having another God before us is to have a statue of a Buddha or a Hindu God and we actually bow down and we worship them. But that's not what God means. Because for me, any time that I'm not loving God with every part of my being, 
and I'm not loving people as he loves them, then I have a God before me and it will be another person or something that I want or myself. Every time that I put something else before God and I do not love him wholeheartedly, then I'm actually worshipping a different God. So I want to finish with these verses from the disciple John. It's 1 John 4, 9, 4, 9 to 12. And I think it just sums it up beautifully. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, then God's love is brought to full expression in us. So remember, we can always ask God to help us love him and to love other people. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for these beautiful words that you've given us from Jesus. And Lord, we just confess that we know we fall short, but we know that Jesus has covered those sins for us. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we know that you have sent the Holy Spirit to help us to love you and to love others. And so stir up in us, Lord God, that sense of overpowering, overwhelming love for you, that love where we just want to focus our attention on you, Lord. We want to give you everything, Lord God. Give us a desire, give us a longing, Lord, to read your word, to worship you, to serve you and to reach out to others who you put in our path, Lord God. And Father, forgive us if we stumble over some passages in the Bible. Help us not to put our mind and our knowledge and our, our what we think, our logic before you, Lord God. Help that not be an idol that we worship. Lord, just bring that down in us today and let us truly be able to worship you and love you all, every part of our being, Lord God. Fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.